All right. Hello, everybody joining us at home. You are tuned into the Daily Roundup here on Rebel News Live, where we bring you the newsiest pieces of the day from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern. And today is Thursday, September 14th, which is crazy to think that we're already halfway through September. I am your co-host, Mary Ugolini, and I am joined by one of our Alberta correspondents, co-host, Sydney Fassard. How are you doing, Sid? I'm doing all right. It's a pleasure to be joining you. And uh, there's a, a few interesting headlines today I look forward to getting through, but uh, I'll leave it to you to get started. Yeah, well, just before we do get started, because we're going to be talking a lot from COVID craziness to the environmental uh, nonsense, is how I would coin it. Uh, just for housekeeping, for anybody who is joining us, we're streaming on a few different platforms. And thanks for tuning in. Uh, YouTube, Rumble, Getter, and Odyssey. And since we've been censored from YouTube, despite having a really large following there, which we try to maintain and keep afloat, you can no longer support us on that platform. We've been demonetized completely. That happened, I think, late 2020 when we were really uh, questioning election stuff uh, in the United States and, of course, questioning the science around uh, some public health COVID-related measures. So if you head over to Rumble, you can send us a Rumble rant, and that, through a small monetary donation, is a great way where our viewers can support our work and also get your comments read live on air, uh, banter back and forth with us, give us your thoughts and opinions on some of the subjects that we'll be talking about, or even if it's something completely unrelated. We are completely donor uh, funded and supported. So your little bits of contributions are always greatly appreciated. And then we have just an ad read that we're going to share with you for a Ben Shapiro event that will be happening in November in Calgary. Uh, it's a conservative event of the year that you will not want to miss. So Ben Shapiro, who is one of the best conservative commentators in the world, uh, whose live appearances are legendary for showcasing his quick thinking and stalwart defense of common sense principles. He is the host, as some of you may know, of the Ben Shapiro Show. He's a well-known columnist, lawyer, best-selling author, and he's America's most watched pro-life advocate, known for his ingenuous debates, jaw-dropping opinions, and relentless ability to tackle the hottest culture wars of our days, the cultural topics of our time. The Wilberforce Project, which is formerly known as uh, Alberta Pro-Life, if I remember correctly, will host Ben Shapiro on November 16th in Calgary. And we shared this a couple of days ago on the live stream, but they've revamped their URL, which makes it so much easier to direct people to. Uh, and you can visit www.benshapirolive.ca for tickets. Maybe uh, someone can confirm for me. We had uh, originally been giving a pre-sale uh, code out for Rebel viewers. And so if you go to that website and you try to purchase your tickets, you should be able to use code REBEL, all one word, very straightforward, to get early access to these tickets. I believe that is still active. And uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong there, but I'm sure if you go in, go there to check it out and you can't order tickets, just try typing in code REBEL for early access because they're sure it's going to sell out. Um, okay, so without further ado, we will get into our first topic, which, sorry in advance, is about Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Just this morning, uh, he's announced that he will be attending the United Nations General Assembly in New York that runs from September 19th to the 21st. It's the 78th session. 
And uh, if you just click open that full link there, you know, it, it it's all about obviously the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, the advocacy groups involved with that. And uh, the Prime Minister will be speaking at the Sustainable Development Goals Summit. Um, he is apparently going to be working very closely with our global partners to build a better world for everyone because we've seen over the last roughly eight years that he has tackled any of that. Uh, but apparently that will include advocating for ambitious climate action, global security, democracy, human rights, and access to healthcare. Uh, the part of this is a really central topic will be um, convening leaders at a global carbon pricing challenge. So this is really, to me, seems to be leading on this um, new age idea of you know ch challenges. You see those viral videos go on social media platforms where it's these silly little stunts, um, but they're they're marketed as challenges. And usually it's funny things like that. There was that bucket challenge. I don't know the some my my kids are sometimes into these challenges, but <laughs> it seems that the government is um, really honing in on that social media trend. Um, and so if you click that link further to the global pricing, carbon pricing challenge, um, it's it's basically calling on countries around the world to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and fight climate change um, through, well, carbon pricing. Because we know here in Canada, at least, that through the use of a carbon tax, that is supposed to somehow work to um, reduce carbon and cool the planet. You know, as we look forward to this, I guess they begin next week. Sydney, what do you think about this? Uh, honestly, I think it's a little bit of a suicide pact. Uh, they, they worship the end of the world in many senses, and they say, well, if you don't uh, adhere to X, Y, and Z, well, then we're all going to die. Um, it's unfortunate language, to say the least. And, you know, it's funny, you're, they're going to UN in New York, uh, look at the issues that they're having with migration. This isn't just limited to New York City. Why aren't they talking about migration? Why aren't they talking about housing? Why aren't they talking about uh, drug problems that we're facing around the world? Instead, they're focusing on all these meaningless things like climate action, global security. Uh, really, what, what does that mean? I mean, we've seen how they handle matters of global security, and they don't do it well. Um, and you talk about democracy. Well, Justin Trudeau is going there to advocate for democracy. Well, that's a little rich, especially given his stance on peaceful demonstrations and the rhetoric he uses towards anybody who disagrees with him. Uh, it, it's really rich. And I think most of the stuff that comes out of the United Nations is uh, a far a far thing from anything good. Right. And it's also just so hypocritical that in order to denounce this uh the happenings and to denounce climate change in general, uh, these global leaders have to have to travel. They always have to convene somewhere as they globe trot and travel unabated around the world, um, whining and dining in these swanky events, these swanky venues. Um, so this particular one, I don't think I mentioned it before, will happen in New York City. And again, that will run September 19th to 21st. Um, and I imagine that they're not staying in, you know, a cost effective Best Western, let's say, and that's even kind of middle of the ground. Um, I imagine they're staying in the best of the best. They'll be eating the best of the best. They'll be flying the best of the best. And the rest of us are to just be starving at home poor because no one can afford their basic life necessities with the rate of inflation and the, the continued imposition and implementation of a carbon tax that really has 
more effect than just increasing costs for homeowners and uh, people who are who have bills and utilities, but it also is ricocheting and affecting obviously food, um, anything that comes to our country via truck, which is basically everything, fuel, so on and so forth. This really has um, a multifaceted impact. It's not just on gas usage and electricity. Uh, this is really impacting every as aspect of Canadians' lives. Meanwhile, uh, the people who are doing this to the plebs, the lay people, are the ones who don't have to reap what they're sowing, which is getting increasingly frustrating for Canadians who are being hit where it, where it hurts their pocketbooks. And I say that all the time. Um, but the Liberals seem to be just so out of touch with that and relentless with these implementations that they can't even see the effect it's having on everyday Canadians. Well, and it's funny, you mentioned there the, the lavish lifestyle they live and indulge in, and it's very true. But in the same hand, I know, I think we've talked about this on a, a recent live where Justin Trudeau's very own jet was falling apart, or at least it was uh, inactive for a few days longer than expected. And this is eight years of Justin Trudeau. He came into a, a house of order, let's call it. He came into a jet that worked. And we're getting to that point now where his lack of attention to the things that actually matter, the infrastructure of everyday Canadian things, such as a, a private jet for the prime minister, which should be, uh, you'd think, something that's never going to break down. And, and here it is. He's spending extra days around the world. And, and I think this is indicative of how he's handled the country, because he walked into a country that was at least, it, it had some decency to it in, in many senses. And, and he's, he's brought such a, a degrading of that uh, over the last few years. We've seen that we're watching the drug overdoses uh, and the impact that has on the communities around the country. We're looking at the homelessness crisis. We're looking at the housing issues. I mean, over the years, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse because he doesn't maintain his own house. Um, you know, we maybe not get into too much of the personal issues he's had to deal with, of course. I think a lot of people know about uh, the, the separation that he's undergone now. But clearly, this is a failure of him to maintain the structures that he was granted uh, and, and uh, given an obligation to uphold. Yeah, I mean, all in all, it's just been complete ineptitude. And I unfortunately, in 2015, when he was first elected prime minister, I was not nearly as politically involved or aware as I am now. And I think that's because of the uh, slow degradation of our country, of our means of living, cost of living has gone so downhill since that time, you know, in 2015, 2014, things were okay. Um, and and now we see fast track eight years later, things are definitely not okay. And the hypocrisy is just so outstand outstanding and astonishing um, that's flouted by the Honorable Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You know, this one quote from uh, that press release, um, if you click that link again from, from his original tweet, you know, you have a quote here from the Prime Minister. And he says, when it comes to addressing the global challenges of our time, like climate change and conflict, there's driving up inflation and the cost of living. Climate change and conflict are driving up inflation and the cost of living. I'm pretty sure that the entire reason why we have this inflationary period with outlandish cost of living prices is the fact that he printed money unabated throughout the COVID pandemic so that he could shutter the economy and justify stay home to save lives. The government has your back. Remember, that was that was his main talking point throughout the COVID hysteria was, don't worry, the government has your back. We have your backs. Just stay home, save lives, stay safe. It was this repeated propaganda narrative 
that if you went out into your community, if you went out more than once every few days to get groceries, you were going to kill your grandmothers. And that as a result, the government printed all this money in all of these government programs like CERB, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit Program, and so on and so forth. And um, as a result of that, that that money hasn't been recovered, been recuperated. They just printed money unabated with nothing to back it up, causing inflation, causing this cost of living crisis. They've added fuel to the fire by increasing carbon taxes, which is, as I mentioned, ricocheted throughout all aspects of our economy. And of course, uh, they've devastated our economy through these unprecedented lockdowns and shutdowns, which would take time, which we're seeing now, to really play out and see what kind of effect that was going to have because that kind of global shutdown of economies was unprecedented. We had no idea what the true fallout would be and we're seeing it now. Yet Justin Trudeau, so out of touch, so unaware, says that this is because of climate change and conflict that is driving up inflation. I mean, yeah, there's certain instances where sanctions and whatnot are going to have an effect on uh, the economy. But this, in my opinion, is largely due to the government's own response as it related specifically to the COVID hysteria. No, the, the list of wrongdoings, I think it's fair to say, is growing exponentially by the day. Uh, and how many scandals has it been now that he's he's somehow managed to make it through? Uh, I mean, there's uh, the groping matters that he's had to deal with. There's the We Charity scandal. Uh, there's the SNC-Lavalin thing. Uh, there's uh, uh, the disputes or issues with Chinese interference. There's the fact that he invoked the Emergencies Act. I mean, really, you, the, the list is extensive. It keeps going on and on. As time progresses, it, it gets larger. And these issues are just racking up, and he is still there standing as the prime minister. It's it's truly unbelievable. And, and maybe we can pull up to the next clip here, a little video. Uh, and he was asked, you know, why today are you only updating uh, on a plan that falls short rather than explaining to Canadians what you're going to do. And this is the, the attitude that we've seen through his time as prime, uh, prime minister. Maybe we can play that clip now. Your government's known for more than a year now or about a year now that the plans in place leave Canadians 3.5 million housing units short by 2030. So why today are you only updating on a plan that falls short rather than explaining to Canadians what more you will do? Uh Earlier this year, we announced the Housing Accelerator, uh, which is an, an investment of $4 billion uh, to municipalities across the country uh, to accelerate uh, zoning, densification, uh, to reward ambition and to take away so many of the different barriers uh, that are preventing housing stock from being built across the country. Now, we know housing is a crisis that doesn't have a single solution, but a big part of it is going to be working with municipalities, as we did with the wrapping ha rapid housing uh, initiative to build uh, housing like this. Uh, this today is the first announcement uh, around the ha housing accelerator. There will be many more to come as we step up on solving this challenge. Canada has solved housing supply challenges in the past, whether it was after World War II, whether it was when the boomers came of age. Uh, we are now uh, embarking upon a significant effort uh, to solve this once again for all Canadians. The accelerator fund is factored in to the calculations from your own federal agency that says Canada's short 3.5 million homes by 2030. So can you clarify for voters who are struggling, as you've acknowledged several times now, but not given an answer to, will your government set out a plan that fills that gap entirely? We know that 
housing is a challenge uh, that the solution happens over years. Uh, and that's why we've been working over the past years to deliver both immediate housing through initiatives like the Rapid Housing Initiative, but also uh, working with partners, municipal partners, provincial partners, private sector, public sector partners to make sure we're doing everything we can to build more housing quickly. We'll, of course, have more to announce in the coming days. Uh, but the fact is that from the national housing strategy we put forward in 2017 to the work we're continuing to do with things like the Housing Accelerator and the Rapid Housing Initiative, um, we're there to respond to the challenge. Canadians are struggling right across the country, uh, and that's why we're responding. He says solutions happen over years. You had eight years. Like this isn't the, a prime minister that just took uh, over in 2021, although he sadly won a fringe minority. Uh, he won based on a fringe minority uh, in 2021 when he called that snap election, which was basically like a, a vote of non-confidence or a vote of confidence for him uh, based on the feedback he was getting from his party at the time due to the nonsensical, non-evidence-based COVID response. But um, he's had eight years. And, you know, it is it is nice starting to kind of see some accountability questions from the mainstream media. Um, he's really had a free pass for the vast majority of his prime minister, prime ministerial role. And finally, we're getting just that little hint that the mainstream media still has a little sliver of accountability questions and speaking truth to power in their compartment. Um, but I think that's probably because they're reeling from the effects of inflation, the housing crisis, cost of living crisis, so on and so forth as well. Uh, it seems like they're not able to advocate for others who may be experiencing those crises. Uh, and, and rather, they have to wait till it's at their doorstep before they start to speak up and, and hold government to account. There was a a global news article as well um, that further hit on this. I'm just trying to pull it up here. Where did I have it? Um, and there was a small video embedded in that article. Um, I, I wonder if I think it's like a minute and a half. And I wondered if we could play that. I think about 42 seconds in is when there was um, some relevant information here. But basically, as of today, the federal government is expected to remove the GST, the, the tax bracket on new rental apartment builds because builders are not immune to what's happening in the financial landscape in Canada either, right? Their materials have all skyrocketed, especially in 2020, and not to mention if various building sites were shut down completely due to, again, those knee-jerk hysterical non-evidence-based reactions to what's now being seen as a seasonal respiratory virus. Um, and so they have their inflationary woes as well with their materials, with the Bank of Canada's ever-increasing interest rates. Um, and it's really putting a damper on the capability and the ability of builders to, well, actually build. Um, so I don't know if we have this global news article that we can share with the clip that's embedded at the top there. Um, Bolivia has access to that. I'd love to just play it. Doesn't seem like uh, it's up. It's up yet. 
Anyway, it's this announcement. Well, if it hasn't already, it might be coming right as we are discussing here on the live stream. But uh, the, the indication is that the federal government will be announcing the removal of GST so that builders, it can be more lucrative for builders to build. Whether or not that will actually happen, we're not sure. A big part of the housing crisis from the way that I see it is the unabated immigration that's been um, promoted and endorsed by the prime minister. And unfortunately, there is not the infrastructure available to house everybody that we have welcomed and will continue to welcome. I think it's 1.5 million people over the next three years. And that's like a conservative estimate. That does not include the illegal aliens that cross our borders illegally at various border crossings like Roxham Road. And so if 1.5 million newcomers are coming into our country, we know that over half of them come to Ontario specifically, and the vast majority of that half will go into the greater Toronto area or Toronto itself. And there is just simply not capacity and infrastructure to adequately handle that massive load of people coming into the country. Uh, and I don't see any of these individuals talking or addressing any of that, which is really a, a big concern here when we're talking about affordability and housing crisis, trying to get it under, under control. I don't think you can get it under control without first lessening the impact of that immigration target by the Justin Trudeau Liberals. Well, and that's exactly it. And we mentioned off the top uh, the the question and answer we just saw with Trudeau. I think it's good that there is more accountability that journalists are presenting. And I think it stems from them realizing, okay, he's, he literally is not answering the questions. I mean, this has been the case for an extended period of time, but now they're they're really trying to get in there with him to, to pull out the fact that this is kind of happening over and over again. And, and to your last point there, yeah, migration is a, a huge issue when it comes to housing because you've got to be able to house them. And this is something that has developed over the last how many, let's call it eight years. Uh, this is this is a, an issue fully developed by the federal government in so many ways. And what, correct me if I'm wrong, Tamara, but recently, after Trudeau had said, you know, we're going to do this and that for housing, this is a little while ago, he said that the uh, housing issue wasn't a federal problem or a federal responsibility in some capacity. Um, he was trying to deflect. And that's the same thing he did in that conversation or in the answer there, is he, kept, he keeps going, oh, you know, my partner's here or, you know, our allies there. Uh, in these different jurisdictions and different levels of government, uh, we're all coming together with this grandiose plan. When at the end of the day, it's he he's botched it. He, he's destroyed the housing uh, uh, market in Canada. He he's taking in how many people a day, and we can't facilitate that development. Uh, whether or not you think migration is a good thing, too much migration is a bad thing. Um, it, it, there is a mm -hmm. threshold there that any population can withstand. Uh, I understand in Italy recently, they have a, 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 I forget exactly the region, but there were more migrants that had come in, in a, a 110 boats. Uh, I think it was around 10,000 individuals, you know, I, I could be getting their number wrong there. But the migrants thereafter outnumbered the local residents on the island. I'm sorry, but that is an issue. Um, there, there are serious problems that are going to be developed from that. And we're, we're seeing a, a similar reaction here in Canada with the housing market is it's just not sustainable what this man is doing to our country, Justin Trudeau. Um, and there we go. Tensions rise on Italy's uh, Lampedusa Island. 
amid migrant influx. And we're seeing the same thing in New York City, where they're going off to this uh, UN convention. Uh, the mayor recently, he put out a very compelling, uh, there was a very compelling video of him speaking about the issue New York is facing. And they're now advocating to build their own wall or to have that wall in the southern border more fully constructed or what have you, to prevent these numbers from just coming up and up and up and destroying the infrastructure of their city. It's funny, now the wall is a good idea, right? Remember, Trump yeah. is is famous for the wall and the controversy surrounding building the wall. And now you have these far left radical mayors who are like, build the wall. <laughs> um, but yeah, it speaks uh, that this is the other global news article that we were going to reference back to. And it uh, highlights the, the a report from Canada's Mortgage and Housing Corporation, that's CMHC, says that Canada is on pace to build fewer not more homes by 2030. And I'll just read the first few sentences. Canada's housing supply gap has shrunk marginally since last year, but the CMHC project projects the country will still be short 3.45 million homes by 2030 for housing to be affordable for most Canadians. The report released Wednesday, just yesterday, revised that estimate that estimate down from 3.52 million in its outlook from June of last year, Ontario still makes up most of the shortfall with 1.46 million supply gap, although it's down from the projected last year. And it's really interesting to note again, because as I mentioned, Canada will receive approximately 1.5 million legal immigrants to our country uh, throughout the next three years. And of those 1.5 million, half will come to Ontario, where upwards of two thirds of them will come to the general uh, greater Toronto area specifically. And then you have uh, Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, who's under fire for wanting to develop parts of the green belt. And it, it's almost as though the lefties want to have their cake and eat it too, because they want unmitigated immigration and this influx they they back it they endorse it they get behind it and yet they want protected green space like the green belt to be preserved and it you know it's really outlandish to think that we can somehow accept this massive influx of immigration and at the same time not build capacity to house everybody um, and so you can't, as I mentioned, you just can't have your cake and eat it too. Something has to give here. Either we need to develop areas where it makes more sense, where the infrastructure is in place to support that kind of development, or, and or really, we need to curb immigration and get those targets back to something that's more reasonable because we're hearing more and more from immigrants that they come to Canada on this promise of um, prosperity and freedom and wealth and an Ability to get ahead and get provide a better life for yourself and for your kids. What they're finding out when they get here is that is not at all the case. So this is really a false promise, broken infrastructure, broken policy, and it all needs to be readdressed and realigned to be practical and and sensical. Because this is what we're seeing is not, and it's harming Canadians first, uh, which is really sad to see the prime minister who's supposed to care about its own citizens first and foremost. 
Well, and of course, it's not just the prime minister, it's his whole cabinet, the, the ministers that are involved. I mean, imagine coming to Canada thinking, you know, this is the, the land where your dreams will come true. And then you hear Stephen Gilbo explaining that Canadians need to pay a, a carbon tax to help prevent natural disasters caused by climate change. Uh, th this is mm -hmm. a, a newfound level of lunacy these people present. And, you know, I wouldn't be, I'm, I'm not surprised when migrants come here and they, they see people like that in power, in positions of power. And they think, oh, yeah, this this country is a joke. You know, I'm, I should probably have not come here. I should probably go back to my own country because at least there was, you know, some some value to be had there. Whereas here, every day, every day, the ministers and the prime minister, they are exploiting Canadians. They're they're upping taxes. They're they're putting people on the streets, quite literally. And this is mm -hmm. this is the Canada that we've created over the last eight years. Yeah, and I think that's why you're seeing the Conservative Party just break break so far ahead in the polls. Um, the recent abacus data from, well, just today, uh, shows the Conservatives are racing ahead at 41%. Liberals are down 26%. The NDP is down 18%. It's very clear that if there was an election today, the Conservatives would have a majority government. And instead, sadly, what we're left with after the 2021 snap election are these two uh, fringe minority parties that's the Liberals and the NDP who have formed this unofficial coalition in the House of Commons. And so uh, they have this unofficial majority government now. And the Conservatives and, you know, a smaller percentage of the Bloc Quebecois, there, there can't be that robust, strong opposition because these two parties have really undermined and evaded democracy by developing this unofficial coalition. So when you have Justin Trudeau going and preaching on the world stage about upholding democracy and human rights and these things, and meanwhile, his own government has propped up another fringe minority government to form a majority government uh, where Canadians obviously voted and don't agree with to undermine the parliamentary structure of our country. So. The hypocrisy, once again, is uh, on full display with this prime minister and the way that he is currently conducting himself, which sadly also means the way that he's conducting this country. Well, and maybe if I could just add, if we pull up that image that we just had on screen, it, it shows a bit of the breakdown of the polling here. And, and if you look, there's only two places in Canada that the Liberals are favored in. It's the territories that have a, a one over a zero that uh, the Conservatives have. And then it's Quebec, which has 26 and Conservatives have 10. But the Bloc has 41 over there. So the only place where the Liberals... Oh, and in the territories, the NDP have two. So I don't think there's a, a province or territory here where the Liberals actually have a lead at all. Um, it, mm -hmm. This just shows you the state of affairs. People are turning on them very rapidly. And uh, I just think it's incredible to see these numbers laid out like that. Like the whole... Uh, the whole East Coast is moving towards the Conservatives now, uh, as opposed to, you know, what, you know, many have seen them as favorable towards the Liberals. Well, that's clearly not the case anymore. Yeah, and I think that's because of, as you mentioned, uh, like Minister, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, and the way that these ministers just politispeak their way in circles with word salads around questions and accountability uh, instead of providing that direct, clear, concise, this is what we're going to do. We hear you. We see you. This is how we're going to move forward and address the issues at hand. Um, and we have a clip here to share from, I think this is an Epoch Times reporter, um, Noé Cartier, 
I'm sorry, French and language stuff is not my forte. But uh, let's just play this Stephen Gilbo clip because this speaks volumes as to the competency and ability of these, these ministers that Trudeau has appointed. Fraction, what do you say to the Canadians that believe, yeah, my affordability or lack of affordability is tied to what I'm paying now for home heating, for gas, for groceries? Um, we, when we talk about the cost of measures to address climate change, we, we, we have to realize that Canadians are paying a very high price tag for the impacts of climate change. Uh, in the past few years, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, and that's not accounting for the forest fires we, we've seen this summer, which were the worst in, in Canada's history. Uh, tens of thousands of people being being moved from their homes, entire entire cities uh, had to be had to be evacuated. Floodings in, in Nova Scotia. Just at the end of winter, we had ice storms in, in in eastern Canada. Climate change is costing Canadians billions, tens of billions of dollars, and we need to act. And there's no there's no bumper sticker solution to climate change. It's hard work, and we know that carbon pricing is one of the best ways to fight climate change. What do you say, though? And I appreciate that, but that's your that's a national budget. But for people at home, it's their monthly. Budget but they're they're, they're, pay, they're paying for that. I mean, if, if it's costing if it's costing Canada tens of billions of dollars of climate impacts, you don't think people at home are paying for that one way or the other? They are. Everyone, all of us are, are paying for that. And, and we need to put in place measures so that our kids and grandkids aren't stuck with a planet that, that in some parts of the world may become unlivable. That's what, that's what we're doing. That's what a responsible government needs to do. And, 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 and yes, there are challenges with, with affordability and we're working very hard, which is why, for example, we're recycling 90% of the revenues of, of carbon pricing directly to households to help them in, in this transition to, to a low carbon economy. But it's going to take some time and, and hard work and, 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 and bumper sticker slogans won't help us to fight climate change. Mr. There is a lot, um, <laughs> you know, I think he kind of, it was a bit of a Freudian slip. I don't think he meant to actually address the fact that these measures are, he, he acknowledges that these uh, climate action me measures are impacting the pocketbooks of Canadians in their every lives. Um, the high price tag impact of climate change. <laughs> and, and we've always had natural disasters. It seems like the idea of having a natural disaster and um, changes to climate are being, or weather are being lumped in as this climate alarmism. We've always had natural disasters. We're never going to get away from natural disasters. And paying taxes isn't going to alleviate the incidences of natural disasters. This is just absurd lunacy, really, it, it, like a God complex, that if we can demand more taxes and squeeze your wallets even more, then we can somehow prevent natural disasters from happening. This is unattainable and unachievable. And it's, again, not an evidence-based or a science-based approach. Um, he says that the the wildfires that have swept Canada are the worst in our history, I don't know if he remembers the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires. Um, in we were researching in uh, Kelowna, BC, British Columbia, where the the wildfires more recently swept through. I believe it was in 2013. Uh, there was a approximately three times as many hectares that were lost to fires 
Um, and so you don't even have to go back that far in history to recognize and realize that what they're saying to you about the incidences of, for instance, forest fires specifically, is not accurate. Um, I don't think that this we've had anything unusual or historical in terms of forest fires this particular year. What do you think, Sid? Yeah, it, when I hear him talking like that, it sounds very religious. You know, it's this this devil over here that's, you know, basically the weather is at some point going to affect you or might hurt you. And you need to pay me to keep you safe, basically. Uh, it, it's extortion in a, a religious undertone that's based out of environmental, quote unquote, science. Uh, it's it's truly a shame to see. But he is an activist by by nature. That's who he's been his entire time, his entire life, I want to say. He's been an activist in this capacity. It's, uh, it, it is very surreal. And, you know, it's not just that they're using this kind of language. It's also the real world effects it has. Like, and I know this, uh, there's a quick, I know we got to go to an ad break, but there's a quick article from the National Post uh, about a Volkswagen uh, a factory in Germany. And they lay off uh, workers, I believe in the thousands, two thousands, uh, over cratering demand for electric vehicle factory. Now, this might uh, be a German factory. However, Trudeau, uh, I remember during the, the convoy, the Freedom Convoy, as it were, there was a dispute or an issue uh, over timely access to materials and supplies through the U.S. border. And there is a, a, a deal that they wanted to sign with Volkswagen to get a large company here um, and basically uh, screw uh, Stellantis and some of the other companies that had already started developing factories. But they built or they they signed on to pay an exorbitant amount of money for these electric factories, uh, EV factories, as it were. And what are we seeing is that we're seeing the, the cratering demand is having them shut down around the world in different areas. So I, I'm really concerned that this poor environmental planning and policy is going to affect jobs at the end of the day. And we've seen that time and time again. And hopefully uh, this new factory that we're talking about here in Canada won't have these same disruptions. But this is uh, this is where you end up when you follow these environmental policies. Yeah, the Liberals were really under fire about that in April uh, earlier this year when uh, the industry, the Minister of Industry, uh, Champagne, gave the gave Volkswagen's battery plant a subsidy of 13 billion dollars. And That's so as Ukraine we're seeing money. here to, to <laughs> Ukraine levels for sure. Um, but as we're seeing that happening in Germany, where the Volkswagen um, factory, uh, the electrical battery factory has laid off the its employees due to um, cratering demand. You know, the writing is on the wall there that we can see as soon as the government is no longer backing this development through subsidies and grants and funding, then the the public interest, the public desire for battery powered, battery operated vehicles is not there. It's not sustainable. It's not achievable. It's uh, not economical. And especially in Canada, it is just simply not practical. And so the writing is on the wall, really, um, because this crater demand becomes as the German government has phased out its electric vehicle subsidy. So as soon as the liberals phase out the subsidy, which maybe it's a revolving door, but I imagine once the conservatives are in power or any other government who follows actual science and data, uh, we'll see that there's just not, doesn't make sense that this allocation of $13 billion is deserved. So uh, we'll see something, I would assume, similar happening here in Canada as we see in real time happening in Germany.
And it's unfortunate that nobody can see that writing on the wall because this is our money in action, um, right? Like people say, oh, it's government funded, government funded. Well, where do you think the government gets the money from? Um, and going up into other topics of government funded institutions and failures, we'll come, we'll go to a quick ad break and then we'll come back and chat about some of the nonsense happening in uh, Canadian school boards. Come on out November 25th. It's all aboard the Freedom Train in Niagara on the Lake. You can check Rebel News for updates and also the Freedom Passport site. Tamara Leach, who led the Truckers Convoy, will be sharing the stage with some of the finest international recording artists, like the Chops Horns from New York City, who's played with Alicia Keys, Stevie Wonder, the Rolling Stones, and many more. Plus, New World Sun, just off a European tour, and the legendary R&B master, Leroy Emanuel. Get on the Freedom Train with Tamara Leach. Saturday, November 25th at Niagara-on-the-Lake Central Community Centre, 680 York Road. Get your tickets today at freedompassport.ca. The Freedom Train is coming. Know your rights. Know your freedoms. Do you want to start feeling like your pre-COVID self again? You're not alone. The wellness company Spike Support Formula is an all-natural supplement to help people do just that. It was created by cardiologist Peter McCullough and his expert team of doctors to help the people experiencing effects from COVID and the you-know-what. Go to twccanada.health rebel today. All right, so next up on the board here, we have the Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who is being um, challenged due to his recent policy requiring school boards to inform and, and schools to inform parents about any sort of gender uh, bending happenings with their children. Uh, so here it says Saskatchewan Premier, and this is from CTV News, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe is ready to use the notwithstanding clause to protect a new rule requiring parental permission for transgender and non-binary students to use different names or pronouns at school, and that's uh, apart from what they would be using at home. Uh, this is in the face of a court challenge brought against the new education policy that's brought by forward by radical gender ideologues um, and a, a group there where he says, for anybody who's not familiar, the notwithstanding clause is uh, a provision to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that allows federal, provincial, and territorial governments to pass laws that override certain charter rights for up to five years. And this used to be kind of shocking, uh, at least to me, that you know the government could just willy-nilly come in and say, oh, too bad, we're using the notwithstanding clause and we'll, we'll kind of um, bypass and override your charter right for up to five years. But throughout the COVID hysteria, it became very evident to me that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms doesn't really have a whole lot of leg to stand on. Um, and so if this is what it's going to take to keep parents at the helm of their children's health and wellness, then you know what I'm with Scott Moe on this one. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting line to sort of draw. 
the charter is something that we're supposed to look up to, yet here we are in times of crisis and it's being used against us. Uh, in this particular situation, perhaps it'll bode well, and it's, it's almost refreshing to see it being used in the counterway uh, as opposed to its usage, let's say, during COVID. So it's interesting to see how this will play out. I'm sure uh, uh, he, he's trying to stay on the right side of history, but especially considering it's the federal government, uh, which seems to either not do anything or be counterproductive on these efforts. So uh, I do hope there will be, be some good change there. And just to reiterate, I mean, the, the amount of, uh, I almost want to call it open pedophilia in schools is atrocious. It's just that they don't realize it. They don't call it that. They don't think about it on those terms. But you look at the books and some of the stuff that's going into these schools, it's absolutely atrocious. It is rated R content, to say the least. It's the kind of stuff that, you know, back in the day when you had a DVD store where you would rent your movies, they would have the closed curtains behind it. That's the section this kind of these kind of books belong in. And then there's the whole other can of worms, which is them either telling or not telling parents about a child's potential desire to transition, whatever that means, uh, basically to mutilate themselves. And, and parents are promoting this. Parents are promoting children's basically self-mutilation at the hands of quote-unquote doctors. So there, there needs to be a pushback. And it is interesting that it comes to a line of almost using the charter in that same you know, the backdoor way of using the charter that the, let's call it the opposition has been using for quite a time. Um, so it, it is interesting to see how this will play out. I, I do look forward to seeing the resolve here. Well, I think that charter argument also upholds uh, parental rights in the name of the charter. And, and this, the intention behind this policy is really to uphold the rights of the parents to be not only informed, but also play a pivotal role in, as I already mentioned, the health and well-being of their children. And the vast majority of parents agree with this policy. And this policy is specific to children under the age of 16, right? They We know that they need robust guidance. They're going through some serious identity confusion. I mean, it's not abnormal or unusual for a child of this age to be trying to find out who they are in the world, trying to find out where they fit in, where they're placed, where their role is within the family, within society, within their friend group, et cetera, et cetera. They need support and guidance not to be uh, just kind of thrown off into this strange, unprecedented social transition realm, which then has that ricochet effect into medical transition, um, the surgical removal of their breasts, surgeries, top surgeries, bottom surgeries. I mean, the the host of woes goes on. And so this is really the first step to make sure the parents are having that involvement, playing that integral role, able to advocate on behalf of their child if they need outside help from a counselor or a therapist or a medical doctor and really stay informed in terms of what's happening with their children because oftentimes there's a lot of comorbidities at play and that that is largely mental health concerns and suicidal ideation and so on and so forth and so if you keep the parents in the dark that these things are happening with their child at school which for a vast majority of children, five days a week, seven hours a day, that's the vast majority of their lives. Um, and if parents are kept in the dark, then they might not be privy or aware to the fact that they need to be extra vigilant with their children, do their due diligence, work with the school to find appropriate solutions. Um, this, this idea that children belong to the state and that the school is equipped to deal with the complex identity issues in children is absurd. And uh, so as I mentioned, I'm with I'm with Scott Moe 
on this one. And, you know, similarly, we have the uh, this the civil liberties group who's filed this challenge against uh, another province in New Brunswick because they're doing a similar uh, gender identity policy, again, at school for children. And I think this one also is for children under the age of 16. Uh, and this is the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And, you know, where was the Canadian Civil Liberties Association when children with autism were being force masked at dental appointments where they'd have to take their masks off anyway, causing severe trauma um, and really grotesque fallout of, of these policies and implementations onto children specifically throughout the COVID hysteria, right? It's all of a sudden it's like, like oh, this is an issue we can get behind, but all the the damaging effects of various policies that were enforced indiscriminately on children, like forced isolation, school closures, indiscriminate masking for anybody, even if they had a sensory processing disorder, autism, or or so on and so forth. Um, these civil liberties associations were largely silent. So I'm shocked that all of a sudden they're comfortable to come forward and advocate, I guess, on what they think is the best interest of the children. But we've seen them completely silent for the last three years on the exact same issues. Yeah, no, it, it's sad to say that our schools are quite literally becoming a war zone for ideology. And I think a lot of parents do need to wake up and realize that the school isn't neutral. Maybe it's supposed to be. Sure, maybe the teachers are supposed to be neutral, right? They're not supposed to embed your child with harmful or negative ideologies. But here they are every single day. We're seeing more accounts of this taking place. The government is not your friend. And the school is a government institution, uh, at least most schools out there. And you have to look at these with a very careful eye. If you want to put your kids in these schools or these systems, you have to look at who's on the boards, who who are the members, who are the people that are actually involved in making these decisions, and what are they? What's what's their history? Do they have a history of you know? I know there's some uh, BC uh, school board trustees that have uh, very egregious sexual histories, and they're being put in charge of decision making when it comes to the books and education that children are undergoing. So you need to vet these education systems with a very extensive eye if you want your kids to be there, if at all. It's very, very, very sad to see what's going on and very dark to think that the government has or the government would allow for and advocate for a separation between parents and their children. That's probably the most mm -hmm. dangerous thing of all of this. And if they can control your children, which they would love to do, then they can control the voting for the next decades because their children are so malleable. Uh, you can really convince and change a kid's mind on basically anything, make them believe almost anything. Uh, and if you're doing that from a, 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 a place of lies, a place of deceit, then these children are going to grow up in a very horrible world and a very horrible reality that we have to dig them out of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, I appreciate that these uh, premiers and ed certain education ministers in some of these provinces are really putting forward robust, strongly worded, very clear legislation to bring those parental rights home, to bring that the, the rights back to the parent and really curb this idea that school boards can just go rogue and do whatever they want with no real oversight or overhead jurisdiction or guidance. And, you know, another thing that is really funny to see or sad, <laughs> not funny to see in Ontario, uh, there's this picture here, and this is a CBC report. This school library in Mississauga, and again, that's in Ontario, has removed all books written before 2008 due to the new equity and inclusion policies. And that comes down from um, uh, the Ontario government under progressive conservative premier Doug Ford 
and his education minister, Stephen Lecce. And so um, I guess Lecce has since come out and he's immediately asked or, or instructed the board to reinstate all of these books. Um, I mean, you can see for yourself, the shelves there are just bare. Uh, yeah, so he's ordered, this is the Peel Region District School Board uh, to stop throwing out the books. And this comes as these school boards, as I said, have just gone rogue. And it's because these directives and these ministry implementation in terms of DEI or DIE, as some people put it, which is diversity, inclusion and equity policies are so ambiguously worded and open to interpretation that it's it's open to the interpretation of the interpreter. So whoever is reviewing this curriculum or reviewing these policies can get as radical or maybe as not as they so please because it's not clear it's all very very flowery and flowy and just put out there to be more of a virtue signaling thing than appropriately implemented and so that's where you're starting to see where these boards go rogue because they they are interpreting the legislation or the policy in a way that maybe it wasn't fully intended um and we see that a lot sadly again at the ottawa um carlton district school board where one of their most radical trustees has been in the news lately that's uh doctor physician Nellie Kaplan Mirth who seems to have really been unfortunately captured by the COVID hysteria uh to the point where it's caused her to have some sort of mental breakdown um there seems to be a clear uh, gear toward hypochondria and anxiety and mental distress with this individual um, instead of, you know, clear, rational thought processes. She just becomes so unhinged and flies off the handle when anyone so much as questions her, labels them as anti-Semitic, bigoted, um, far right, you know, you name it. And she's calling you that if you just say, hey, I'm not going to vote on a mask mandate motion with you, for instance. And, and so if anyone's not familiar with this particular trustee, Nellie Kaplan-Murth, we've provided extensive coverage at firenelly.com. So you can kind of refresh yourself on that. But just to source back to this True North article here, um, the Ottawa School trustee is slamming the board for not reprimanding her and her aggressive and really, I would call it abusive behaviors. Um, so Donna Dixon recently file uh, issued a code of conduct complaint against Nilly, and she just became so unhinged in the meeting so unhinged after the meeting you know there's allegations online with some video evidence that she assaulted a journalist who was just trying to ask her a couple questions people now donna dixon is saying that she should resign parents within this the ottawa district school board have called on her to be fired there was two uh, change.org petitions that had thousands of signatures before they were removed by Nellie herself because she claimed everybody signing them was far right, bigoted anti-Semites. Um, and so that's why we launched our own petition. And when Sheila Gunn-Reed, our editor-in-chief, attempted to drop it off to Nellie, she again became so unhinged, shouting at Sheila, slamming a door in her face. This woman is not mentally well. Um, and it's really sad to see because this is this is really the radicalized effect that the COVID narrative and public health measures and messaging has had on some of these people. And I mean, you can you can see it for yourself. It's on full display. And uh, this is where the waters get a little bit muddy because someone like this is now 
attention seeking and funneling and fueling their own agenda, what they want to see implemented, instead of advocating for tangible learning in the classroom for the children that they're and the parents that they're meant to represent. This is someone who's acting completely independent from their role as a trustee to represent parents, parental concerns, and the education access uh, for children. And so I think that that's where some of the ministers and premiers are needing to step in and step up to regain that control, reign in the hysteria, and bring back tangible learning into the classroom instead of these radical ideologies. Yeah, no, you can see the crazy in her eyes. I, I think there's no no exaggeration there when I say that. You can see it, either crazy or hate, whichever one you want to call it, but you, you can see it whenever you look at her. Um, and to think that she's still wearing that mask and going around, and I saw you know our federal ministers or uh, you know, health officers, what have you, wearing their masks, you know, uh, saying, you know, it's time, maybe people should think about blah, blah, whatever. Honestly, at this point, if you still wear a mask, you're either ignorant or evil. I'm sorry, but there's no two, there's no other way around it. This woman, I think, is perhaps a mix of both, but I think she's also gotten to that point, which a lot of people probably have, those who were the hardest believers of the masks and of the vaccines and of the lockdowns. Well, if you're the one out there saying that the unvaccinated should die, it's pretty hard to come back from that without swallowing a big I told you so pill. And I think that's just something a lot of these people are either incapable or unwilling of doing. They can't admit to themselves that the whole world they created around them with the mask and all of this jazz was a lie. It was a complete lie. And their rhetoric actually did more harm than good. The fact that they're actually hurting themselves by wearing these breathing barriers, it's, uh, it's something they'll never attest to because it'll destroy the whole house of cards they've developed. They've really been captured by the COVID regime, which seems to be really ramping up. Once again, we saw the recent authorization of the uh, new COVID booster happen on Tuesday, uh, two days ago, by some of our notable health overlords like the Chief Public Health Officer, Teresa Tam. And then we have this uh, news piece to bring you from CP24, where the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health, that's conflict of interest riddled, Dr. Kieran Moore, who is set to unveil a COVID-19 fall preparedness plan this week following an uptick of infections in the province. And so this really blasts me back to 2020 when it's like, we're going to be announcing an announcement later this week, so please stay tuned. The the announcing of the announcement um, was kind of something that the Ford government and his elusive, at the time, Ontario Science Table, before they were fully named, uh, was really notorious like, stay tuned, we're going to be announcing and people will be scrambling, you know, are we going to be shut down? Is our restaurant going to have to throw out millions of dollars of food, so on and so forth. Um, so I suppose we'll just have to stay tuned and see if uh, Kieran Moore, what his fall preparedness plan was going to look like. Will it ignore the previously well-established preparedness plans that we had in place prior to 2020? You know, we always had those flu and influenza pandemic preparedness plans in place. And those were completely ignored and instead replaced with these knee-jerk hysterical restrictions, lockdowns, and forced isolation, and then eventually forced masking. So whether or not we're going to see that again, I'm not sure. Um, we There's a tweet here that I wanted to highlight as well, where uh, this is an anonymous golden retriever account. Um, I have an idea of who this person is. It is a real person. But of course, anybody who speaks out against the narrative, who provides kind of that balanced evidence, uh, supporting data, they would be named 
shamed, shamed and have their livelihoods completely ruined and decimated for simply stating and having a balanced opinion. And so when you have someone like this, who's obviously intelligent in data uh, gathering and analysis, coming onto Twitter to share that with a broader platform, they have to remain anonymous. Otherwise they risk losing everything to these pandemic profiteers that will go to great lengths, it seems, to protect their reputation uh, while they're profiting off of the hysteria that they generate. And so this uh, golden pup, which again pro provides really great analysis using Public Health Ontario's own data sets, and sometimes he, uh, he does larger, more national statistics, but um, he reshared this clip from Kieran Moore in September 2021 issuing a preferential recommendation that Pfizer be used to vaccinate teenagers over Moderna, the Moderna shot, due to myo slash pericarditis risk. And I did extensive interviews with um, also independent data analyst Kelly Brown on this. And he was finding the incidence rates in those young males, where I think it was at the time one in 3,600. Um, it might've even been less than that. I'll have to double check. But after Kelly started advocating and speaking out against that, the government finally followed the science and issued this, this um, preferential recommendation. And then, so uh, you can contrast that with the fact that Health Canada just this week recommended two doses of Moderna for previously unvaccinated infants six months and older. Um, so let's just go take a quick trip down memory lane and see what Kieran Moore was saying in September of 2021. We continue to push for our vaccination rates to increase. We have made the decision to issue a preferential recommendation for the use of the Pfizer vaccine for individuals aged 18 to 24 years of age. This decision was made out of an abundance of caution due to a very small but observed increase of pericarditis or myocarditis following vaccination with Moderna as compared to the Pfizer vaccine in this age group, particularly amongst males. I know that this news may make some people nervous and heighten concerns about receiving a COVID vaccine, and I can understand that. But the benefits of vaccination continue to significantly outweigh the risks of COVID-19 illness and related possibly severe consequences. About the uh, myocarditis uh, recommendation about the Pfizer vaccines, I just we understand that um, fears over myocarditis risk from the vaccination has already been a really big source of hesitancy and anxiety for people who aren't getting the shots. So yeah, we could probably just cut this. I think you this get the idea. But um, this is like two years to the date ago, and now it'll be really interesting to see. The thing that Kieran Moore never publicly um, announces in any of these conferences, he has previously publicly announced it, and we have the clips and the receipts um, to prove it, and I've done extensive reporting on this, is that Dr. Kieran Moore has a declared conflict of interest with Pfizer. He sits on one of their advisory boards, um, and he has declared that previously in uh, video streams and otherwise. And so is it ethical that this is the same individual advising the government on things like vaccine passports, advising the government on preferential treatment of Pfizer over Moderna? And what is he going to say? Uh, today's Thursday. So this announcement of the announcement is expected later this week. Uh, so I would say that's either today or tomorrow. It'll be really interesting to see and hear exactly what he says amid this recent authorization of
of the Moderna shot, which using and based on the government's own data was never studied or tested in anybody under the age of 18. And only 50 people received this particular injection in the clinical trial, which is not set to be complete until November 17th of this year. That's just shy of 12 weeks from the time of authorization. This is heavily concerning. And I think very dangerous and sloppy um, conduct on the part of Health Canada. Yeah, well, and I'm not sure maybe, it, I know we're getting late into the hour here, or maybe we'll jump off of YouTube to discuss some more of this COVID stuff perhaps, but uh, I, I just want to pull up an old clip to give you a, a bit of a teaser as to what might be happening next uh, in some senses. It's an old clip of on uh, the Ontario policymaking, and they were, I guess they didn't think they were on camera, and they were mentioning how they make some of the decision-making here uh, when it comes to, yeah, let's just play that clip and hear this uh, little teaser for what's to come next. I don't know why I bring all these papers. I never look at them. Oh, you're giving numbers I do. I go, oh, oh, oh. Why did I say that? Did you really say that? <laughs> I just say whatever they write down for me. <laughs> That's why you're guessing. Yeah. Right there. Uh, yeah, I just say whatever they write shocking. down for me. Yeah, it's, yeah, I remember it's that the kind of thing was... that we're seeing. Sorry, I said go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, it's the kind of thing we've been seeing time and time again. Uh, and recently, actually, there was a revealing that the, the CIA, I believe it was, uh, had actually been financing their own members, uh, sponsoring them with large amounts of money so that they wouldn't say that the, uh, the I'm not sure if we're on, uh, still on YouTube or not, but uh, there were some allegations made by the CIA or about the CIA's funneling of money, basically, to people to ascribe a certain narrative to the origin of the vaccine or the virus, as it were. So this kind of basically pay to say has been going on across the board in different countries. And I have no doubts in multiple levels of our government here in Canada, uh, especially we talk about, uh, we've recently talked about, yeah, we're off YouTube now, but we recently talked about those secret uh, documents that were revealed in South Africa, probably very similar to what we're facing here in Canada. And, and it, it says pretty clearly that the long-term effects aren't known. You're basically signing away to get, get a bunch of shots and you have no idea whether or not they're actually effective. Uh, so if it does come to passing, uh, that we see those documents that were signed here in Canada, I'm sure that would be uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty disgusting to say the least. And you know, in all of this time, while the you know pandemic, as it were, was going on, while lockdowns uh, enforced by politicians were getting stricter and stricter, what have we seen in the meantime? You know, it wasn't just the damage from COVID that we were suffering through; it was overdoses. And you know, there is actually uh, we got a tweet here from Roman Barber uh, that the deaths from overdoses doubled during the 2021 lockdown. What do you know? I, I, honestly, I, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. That, that's what happens when you lock people down, you shut down their jobs, you, you disassociate them from their families, you end up with a massive overdose crisis. And, and I think it's, you know, there's a little kitty, <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's absolutely atrocious. No, no, it's all good. Uh, it, it's absolutely atrocious to see that, it, it's not just that they were wrong about the lockdowns and the virus and the vaccine. In that time and all that effort they spent towards those things they inevitably got wrong, they could have been putting that towards housing. They could have been putting that towards the overdose crisis. They could have been putting that towards something that actually mattered to Canadians. But here we are, eight years later into Justin Trudeau. What, what do you expect when the uh, the most unprecedented pandemic comes around? He, he goes with the herd and manipulates people, even though he knows that what he's doing is wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, that was my uh, cat. His name's Lemon. He is being annoying right now. So I apologize if he tries to make a sneak appearance again. But just going back to that clip where they say caught on hot mic, 
I just I just say whatever they write down for me. That was the former uh, associate chief medical officer of health for Ontario, Barbara Yaffe. And then she's seen sitting there beside Dr. David Williams, who was the predecessor to Kieran Moore. So he was the former chief medical officer of health in Ontario. And uh, they have both since been replaced and or just moved to the background. Um, but I think it was Yaf, Barbara Yaf, Yaf, who also said uh, there was a clip that she basically confirmed, you know, half of all COVID cases are asymptomatic. So i.e. they're just healthy individuals who are testing positive for this respiratory infection um, based on a exceedingly high cycle threshold of a non-diagnostic tool, which was the PCR test at the time. And uh, when they started to give out these little tidbits, right, when they're caught on hot mic or they're saying accurate things like half of all COVID cases are asymptomatic. And, it, and I think it was something along the lines of in a population where you you have massive testing, um, half of them. Yeah, is this the clip here? Uh, oh, it's not. It, it is the clip. We, can we just play that? I know. Sorry, we're going a little we're going over here, but it's so important that people listen to this because the, the information was out there at the onset. That testing is going to really solve the whole problem. And it isn't. It's one component of a response. If you test somebody today, uh, you only know if they're infected today. And in fact, if you're testing in a population that doesn't have very much it's COVID, hard. you'll get false positives almost half the time. That is the person actually doesn't have COVID, they have something else, they may have nothing. Uh, so it will just complicate the picture. You know, mm -hmm. sorry, I, I miss, uh, I remembered that. So there you have it on full display, you will get false positives almost half of the time. So we could have cut those, you know, the case counts and it's a, it was a case-demic um, essentially because the previous pandemic threshold would be actually having deaths, which I don't wish on anyone. Of course, that's horrendous and horrific and 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 a, any death is a tragedy. Um, but this was really a case-demic because we switched out reporting on deaths and instead um, really hyped up and hystericalized, if that's even a word, the case counts, which half of them, up to half of them could have been false positives. So if we cut those numbers in half, then do we really have a quote unquote pandemic? I think when I refer to pandemic pandemonium, people, some people give me, you know, flack in the comments or even out in public. And I say, no, when I'm referring to pandemic pandemonium, I'm referring specifically to the government's response to a seasonal respiratory virus. I'm not referring to a viral pandemic necessarily. I'm referring to that failed government pandemonium response to the purported pandemic. I'm sorry, my cat, <laughs> I forgot to close the door to my studio. Um, anyway, uh, so I know we're getting a little bit off of uh, 2 p.m. And uh, do you have anything there just to add before we wrap things up, Sid? No, we can we can come to a close here. It's uh, it's a sad to see. Although there is the one thing I could say, perhaps which is positive, which is the the town of Tecumseh. I pardon my mispronunciation. There is the last local municipality with COVID nineteen vaccine requirements and suspends the policy. So 
Uh, I, I find this to be interesting timing, especially as there's people, you know, hoisting the masks again in our federal uh, uh, government. But it's uh, at least a little refreshing that this came to a close. Uh, thank God, honestly. It's uh, let's just hope this isn't back up in two weeks. Much overdue at this point. Um, well, for anybody who's joined us at home, thank you so much. I don't think we have any super chats in the docket today. Um, but there will be two rebels to join you again, same time and place, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern here tomorrow. And maybe by that point, we will have uh, the announcement update from people like Dr. Kieran Moore. So stay tuned. And as David Menzies would always say, stay sane and stay safe. Are transgender people welcome in Canada now that the Conservative Party, uh, it's, it's policy not to let them use the bathroom of their choice and also to limit their health care options as minors? Uh, that is, uh, the answer, of course, is that the, everybody's welcome in Canada, and your question is factually wrong. I encourage you to actually read the policies instead of spreading disinformation. We need less disinformation and more honest, honesty and truth-telling, and uh, your readers are, are, are suffering a very big disservice when you spread disinformation. Thank you.